Hi, everybody. I'm Bilaval. And I'm Hilmar. Welcome to the Creative Technology Podcast, where we explore the ever-growing intersection of creativity, technology, and culture. Hilmar, tell us about yourself. Currently, I work as a research director at Autodesk Research in the entertainment space. And prior to that, I spent my career in Hollywood, specifically the movie and the visual effects industry, started out as a lighter, and I had a tons of different roles while working on a ton of different movies. My all-time favorite might be Galaxy Quest, but I got to be a technologist, a creative, and a manager. And about 10 years ago, I took an interest in what real-time content creation can do and especially in developing new content and in virtual production. So Bilaval, let's hear from you. Well, as someone who got into visual effects at the age of 12, I think that is probably the humblest introduction I've heard from a SciTech Academy Award winner. But let's leave that aside. Myself, I'm a senior product manager at Google by day where I work on immersive 3D experiences to help you explore and get stuff done in the real world. By night, I'm Billy FX, a digital creator on YouTube and TikTok, where I blend reality and imagination with the art and science of visual effects. Enough of the intros though, let's dig into it, starting with a focus of today's episode, AI art. We've had all these workflows that were happening with computers still involving a lot of manual artistry. And now we're really at the precipice of computers being able to automate away a ton of those jobs, including things that we didn't expect, like digital art and creativity, right? Like 10 years ago, if you asked anyone, they'd have been like, well, AI is going to take your jobs. But the first thing it's going to take is like, you know, the blue collar jobs. Then it's going to take the white collar jobs, boring stuff like accounting. Maybe then it'll be like developers and coding. And then finally, it'll be creativity because creativity is just so novel that there's no way a machine could do that. But in reality, the exact opposite has happened, particularly over the last six months with the rise of, you know, text to image generative AI models really hitting this threshold of quality where it's, you know, forcing everyone in the industry to ask ourselves, what is, you know, the real, you know, what are the implications of this technology? Technology. Really well observed. And I see that transition is now hitting everybody in the face. Everybody that I speak to in the entertainment industry has heard about it, seen about it. And it seems like everybody's walking up to it and it turns into an existential question like, what's my purpose here? Do I still have something to offer? And I mean, everybody has to go there. And it's, we sometimes just call it text to uh, content in general because it, the scary thing to me is it was text to image. The next week it was text to video. And then the week after that, it was text to movie and with score. And it's just the breathtaking velocity, which has to have to do with the open source nature of it and the whole community, everybody just going full blast at it. So this is the core here. What is the artist's role in this? And that existential question, where do you go with it? Do you just resign, you fight the system? Or do you double down on your art that exists right now? Or do you actually go straight in and adopt it and make it part of your workflow? What's your answer to that, Billy? I think you got to dive headfirst in. Like, that's clearly the decision that I'm taking and you're taking, right? You know, but you hit on something right before this, which is super, super relevant, which is the velocity at which this change is happening. Like, I think that's a part of the anxiety that artists are going through. It's like, oh, yeah, I barely grappled with 
text to image. And now there's like a bunch of these video generation models, like 3D model generation itself. And just a couple days ago, like music generation, you can generate, you know, with a text prompt, like essentially a multi-instrumental mix down of something that would have taken hours of studio time and mixing to do previously. So I think that velocity of innovation is adding to the anxiety. I don't think any of us can keep track of all the crazy things that are happening in this industry because it is permeating so many different verticals. But I think we have no choice but to embrace it, right? Clearly, some of the shift that I've seen in my life, and I'd be curious to hear about the shifts that you've seen, is like 3DS Max 4 scanline rendering took so freaking long. And I imagine for y'all, y'all had like full, you know, non script warehouses in LA probably spending hours to render a single frame of film and then next thing you know oh yeah actually no big deal you've got redshift and octane render you can just do this all on your GPU like circa 2015 2016 really that stuff started taking its fold of course real-time game engines like unity and unreal sort of this gap between real-time and deferred rendering has been converging from both different sides with the real-time game engines becoming higher and higher quality and more and more photorealistic so almost being at a point where things like Mandalorian and that stuff was like, hey, you can almost get final pixels in real time. Similarly, all these deferred renderers, right? Like the gold standard was like, you know, Mental Ray, you know, Arnold, obviously the stuff that Pixar has, that stuff's been getting more and more real time as well. So that's one shift that I've seen. I would say the other shift that I've seen that's very interesting here is just like tasks that were considered digital compositing historically, rotoscoping somebody, you know, green screening, relighting somebody, tracking objects, all of that stuff is basically encapsulated in real time with augmented reality starting 2017 with AR Core and AR Kit really you can run a version of the visual effects pipeline in real time on the phone in your pocket and that's been mind blowing to me because it's like you know people write it off it's like oh that's a funny Snapchat filter that's just doing real time segmentation and relighting and tracking things and adding all these objects that you're now seeing TikTokers use almost as a replacement for After Effects. Like by duct taping together a couple different apps, they're able to do things that took me hours in After Effects. And that's initially made me uncomfortable. And now I've been asking myself that question as well. Either I can feel uncomfortable about it or I can embrace virtual production workflows and AR workflows to get the content ideas I have in my head out on a canvas without having to be so precious about the art and craft that I grew up learning. So for me, the answer is you gotta go ahead first and see how it can supercharge your creativity and help you get your ideas out on paper. Because in the macroeconomic sense, it's not just the velocity of AI models and the innovation therein, it's also just like content consumption has changed from long form content. Now everything is short form and it comes and goes so the, the volume and velocity of content that you have to produce as a creator right now is insanely high. So why not take advantage of these innovations to feed the beast, so to speak, and do that without burning myself out? In fact, the opposite, supercharging my creativity. Those have been some of my observations of sort of the trends I've seen happening and how I think we can leverage some of these innovations to take advantage of even the consumption mechanisms that are clearly changing. I'm curious though, Homar, like you've been in this industry for a while and you've probably seen the shift from like even really the early adoption of computer graphics down to virtual production would have been some of your observations and transformations in your career. A couple of things to add to what you already said. For sure, the digital nature coming into when I started at ILM, there was still a camera shop and you know the model shop, and they built camera and modified them and built models, then blew them up and flew a real physical camera through that. And that transition into digital, which was with me at least ten years of my career, was certainly the most 
dramatic change because everything seemed to get unified. And what it made possible, of course, is to move the linear medium into also into software and into the digital space to basically paving the way for a game and film to converge. And then, as you said, exactly, the ability to work in real time became my biggest topic, I would say, in 2012, around that time, because it made clear that the exploration of creative spaces does, needs that kind of speed. And it was a very infectious thing to go in there and, and explore a space fully as fast as possible, take more risks, and fondly remember some prep work for Cowboys and Aliens with John Favreau, where we did already go in that direction in the proprietary content creation software at ILM. It had a real-time component to it. You'd mentioned something interesting when we were speaking off camera about how fundamental these techniques around real-time content creation were to even get the movie greenlit. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so greenlighting is a process that is surprisingly uneven, and it takes a long time. In some cases, it takes years, close to a decade to go from script to an actual green light. The visual effects industry is good at finishing, but over time, it's also developed an approach to supporting the filmmaker in getting the right material together to get other people excited, because... That's what it is. You have to get the executive producers, the studios excited about your property, talk about who you would cast into this picture. So time and again, we were called on on these little splinter units to create content that's valuable to then get into that green lighting process. I mean, Avatar was one example. There was Cowboys and Aliens just really leaps to mind because it was fully integrated. That's the exciting thing about it is that the ability to never leave your context in your creative exploration, that is what makes it powerful. And you want to have it almost go from like my sketch pad all the way into the editorial suite that things stay live and malleable. And we're definitely trending in that direction. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself because it ultimately that led to the virtual production methods where you stay live with all of it through principal photography. With, which has its consequences and challenges, of course, uh, that you have to be ready before you walk onto virtual production set. Isn't that better than fixing it in post, though? You know, it's like, oh, we'll just fix it in post. The fact that the work has been done off front, does it make the process smoother or, or no? I'm kind of curious. I've got to be really careful what I say here. The, the, <laughs> you have to have made up your mind, let's put it that way. Like, yes. you can't keep your options open anymore. It's in the can. It's like no more going back. So you have to front load so many decisions. And I feel with anybody who's creative, you're still in that like in that morass of like, try out this idea, try out this idea, even when you're in principal photography and to just then have something that you cannot change anymore. It kind of does limit things a little bit. And having to say, oh, let's fix this in pre means you're wrapping for the day. You're going back to the virtual art department. You're rebuilding the set that you're shooting in. And then, then you can it. go again. Yeah. It adds shooting days. One thing I wanted to throw out there. Yes, we had digitization. 
we did have real-time component in it all. Now, your other point that offline production, which means large make pipelines, huge data centers that are churning on the images and, and the simulations, let's not forget that simulation is a pretty big component in this, that required the artists to put a lot of effort into learning the crafts and the technical stuff and keeping that pipeline oiled. And I think that that was almost unfair because it served exactly that long-form content predictability and really didn't drive forward necessarily the artist's purpose. So now we're finding ourselves with move towards short form, short content. As you said, it seems like that was all wasted learning. And people are feeling, oh, I have to learn real time. I'm going to have to learn proceduralism. And now I'm going to have to learn all of this AI. And you highlighted a threat on LinkedIn. It's in color in front of us. Like people really are basically out of steam to learn a new thing. But I think there's a lot in this case they stand to gain. So it's a big moment, I think, at 2022. Biggest moment in the change of creativity, in my opinion. I couldn't agree more. To bring it back to artists very quickly, though, there's a couple of takeaways in what you said for artists, right? Like the fact that in the past, it was only the creme de la creme of VFX houses, ILM, et cetera, that had access to these type of technologies, you know, to be able to, hey, like, what is a lighter weight form of giving our EPs and the studios a sense of what we're building? Now it feels like those same tools are in the hands of creators who, hey, if you're like bidding for a certain project as an indie, you know, you don't have to have like... ILM backing you, you could take advantage of like text to image generators to create a mood board or essentially put less effort up front to get the gig so that you save your artistry and craft for when you actually get the gig. And I think that's exciting. And uh, at the same time, on the other hand, you're talking about this anxiety of uh, constantly keeping up. And you referenced that LinkedIn thread, which is so true. It's like, you know, Maya and Blender artists are like, well, I need to learn Unreal. And then the Unreal artist's like, well, I need to learn Houdini. And oh gosh, Houdini still seems like a pain to learn. I tried and I gave up very quickly. And so I'm hopefully excited that all of this stuff will get the craft that you alluded to having artists to learn what is a bullet simulation and how do you do massive simulations that are somewhat predictable and keeping that pipeline oiled is something everyone in tech and design can probably relate to. Hopefully those aspects get abstracted away as things go on, my hope is. Maybe we'll just construct more abstract pipelines, but it feels like those like dialing the knobs and like all of that sort of bailing wire and duct tape that was needed previously to get these productions out the door are less and less relevant. And so maybe there is sort of a brighter side to all of this for artists too. No doubt. And let me turn this around here for a second, Billy. In our conversations, awesome conversations with you always, you are in that space. Like you're building your own IP. You're making things much more quickly. And I think what you said, everything that the industry, the movie and game industry has created is sort of a bias towards it. It has to be perfect. It has to be, you know, fully mm. vetted and like it's almost unnatural expectation that something has <laughs> to be taken to a certain place. And you're proving us all wrong. So how's your journey into TikTok, YouTube? Just let it rip a little bit. What has happened to you and what have you learned? That's a really interesting point too. There has definitely been as a part of this shift from long form to short form content, I feel like I've been able to be more creative because A, the canvas for creativity is a little bit more limited, right? You know, when I was 
just starting out in YouTube and looking at the greats, you know, who are doing well on YouTube, since it was all longer form content, people were spending weeks and weeks making these essentially short movies with visual effects. And so like the exact pain and suffering you alluded to with super long form, if you condense that down to 10 minutes, it's still pretty great. Like there's still a lot you have to do. But the moment the canvas for your creativity is a short form video, for me, I was able to thrive because like I was obviously juggling this with a day job. And so I was like, all right, well, what can I make in a couple hours on Sunday? Can I get into After Effects? Can I use this AR plugin? Can I use this 3D tool and just like duct tape something together? And yeah, totally. You can make an awesome 15 second short that gets you to dwell upon it in this like almost infinite feed of content. And so I enjoyed that because it was like far more constrained than having to make like, you know, the hero's journey encapsulating that in a beginning, middle and end. And now it's very much about what's the hook and then what's the like, you know, the conclusion that you're going to give. You got the hook. They're excited for the buildup. By limiting that canvas, I'm actually super excited about this trend in consumption that's happened. Now, there is another side to this, too, which we'll get to later, but... As far as I'm concerned, I'm super stoked on shorts and it gave me almost like the perfect guardrails to be able to try all these new tools and workflows and deploy it and then get feedback very quickly, right? Because that's the other thing that I think has changed compared to like the linear waterfall production pipeline that historically Hollywood has had to do is like, oh, let's make this like, you know, we'll come back to this later about the, the notion of vanilla creative to hyper targeting. Yo, you can make a short and get feedback in two days and get really good retention graphs, really good comments, see what did well, didn't do well. And then the end of the week, you're making a new piece of creative that builds in those learnings. So the life cycle of, you know, creating something, putting it out there, seeing how people responded is also getting condensed. And so are the tools to analyze how people are engaging with this content, right? Because of course, that's super important for advertisers on TikTok, YouTube, so on and so forth. So yeah, that, that's a little, been a little bit my journey and I kind of love it. I find myself now itching to go more longer form because it is in a way still more satisfying to create something that has that beginning, middle, and an end. But yeah, those are some of my thoughts. And, and, and let me add maybe yeah. the ability to add on your intellectual property because you you know what you've made with the aliens out there in the world and seeing <laughs> them with the eerie music. That was a you move. We've seen like the worst of the short form content and like it's just like watch it once and forget about it. But the ability to follow a character around and see what their choices are, maybe that's my imagination, but I'm already seeing a trend in that. Even in the short form content, it's getting longer. We're coming back to the same character and maybe a different kind of way of building these stories is upon us where people start small, see what works, like you're saying. But then in order to that be taking the next level, what do you think needs to happen? to empower creators there. I think creators are already empowered. Like you, you're kind of hitting the nail on the head. It's almost like you can focus group on TikTok. You can go try a bunch of creative out and then see what sticks and then really start constructing, you know, longer form content, premium interactive content around that. And that is absolutely happening. I would say one trend that comes to mind in this space is 
just the notion of virtual YouTubing, right? Like this is a trend that really took off in Japan. They adopted all the virtual production stuff that like the more proprietary version of that that you were using on Ready Player One as an example. By the way, hilarious that that's like all about the metaverse and you know, here we are. But that stuff was really popping off in Japan and everyone's like, well, is this maybe just like a Japan thing? Like they tend to be early adopters for a lot of this technology. And now you're seeing a bunch of these like agencies pop up that are creating almost like synthetic influencers. And these synthetic influencers are, again, like the way you consume their content is short form over time versus like sitting down and seeing something for like a, a stretch on Netflix. But it's absolutely that you're bringing people into that universe, that cinematic universe, if you want to call it that, that creative universe, that social universe. And just the way you pull people in is more like bite-sized over time. And so I think creators are empowered to do that today, right? Like just think of the organic reach creators have at their disposal in 2022 on TikTok, on YouTube shorts, Instagram reels. That is unheard of. It feels like the early, early days of YouTube, right? Where you could have 500 followers on YouTube. You could post a video and it goes viral. So you've got that type of engagement today. So I think creators are empowered to do it. I think the problem creators run into, especially creators that come from, you know, even a more traditional background, let's say even in like my millennial generation are like, they're purist. They're too purist about it. They're like, well, TikTok is just for dancing videos. So I'm not going to make TikTok. It's like, no, no, no. It is mostly dancing videos, which is why you'll stand out. This is why you should make it. Why don't you put your creative on there and try something different, right? Because all these like verticals of content, like, the platforms don't know what's going to pop. They're just waiting, watching just like the creators are, just like the consumption side is. And so I think like what a time to be able to cheaply experiment without having to buy that super expensive camera. Like what comes to mind is when I was a kid, like the heroes for me were like the Robert Rodriguez's of the world. Spy Kids. Spy Kids was an example. When I would see it, I was like, nobody called it virtual production then, but everything was shot on green screen. Right? And it was all about shooting with the early days of these like 24 F. FPS, but still digital cameras, which was frowned upon by the purists, perhaps in your side of the aisle. And now it's like, oh yeah, your iPhone can just record amazing 4K video and you can edit it on there too because you've got this like crazy M1 chip on your iPad or whatever with this like neural engine that can do all this segmentation. So I think everything's been democratized and people kind of forget that. They're still kind of doing what they usually did or the path well trodden rather than taking advantage of the new creation and consumption tools at their disposal. I'll just say the adventures of Shark Boy and Lava Girl. Yeah, one other one. Of me. Yeah, yeah. I got to work on that. So cool. I hear you. Yeah, yeah. Uh. Democratization. I see people though. This is in the case of creative technology, text to content, or different ways of how you express yourself. Now, the number of people that has given access to is I don't know how many zeros you've got, but is it a thousand times is it ten thousand a hundred thousand times more like if you speak english and you can write it <laughs> you can make images you can make videos yeah. and soon you'll be making proper little stories so coming back to what does that mean to the people that are currently coming from the high end they must be looking at the space and seeing it evolve and like finding their place in it because there's also the TikTokers and the music video makers. We've seen plenty of videos now with you just sing and then you get all the visuals for free. Uh, <laughs> 
for musicians, music's always been the place where there, like, there's most experimentations. It's always mm. a space to watch. And there's got to be an implication for how the current professional and the current would like to be professional, would like to make a business out, mm. out of what they do well, that they're meeting in that same place. And that is now catalyzed by text-to-content tools. I think that's really exciting. And where they're going to be meeting in the middle is where I think we'll see that kind of experimentation where maybe even a fine artist or a poet or a bonsai tree artist has the beginnings of an idea that will be taken by a small cohort to be something more meaningful and reach an audience that's bigger. So that is what I think is where everything is starting to come together. And everybody has a role to play in it. Everybody needs to evolve and find their way towards it. And maybe it's unsolicited here. When I started my journey into becoming a professional, I wrote my own ray tracer in university doing math and computer science. I'm like, oh, look at me, Homer. I'm writing a ray tracer, <laughs> off to being an artist. And then some good soul said, all right, listen, friend, nice try. You have to study art. And in the 90s, that was probably true because then that was unique. But your original statement there, our expectations about that might be changing. So somebody who is a technologist right now has a bit of access to the tools and doing something with it, like making their voice heard to participate because the distribution platforms are out there. And what I'd like to see is how are they going to come together? How is the writer going to connect with the videographer, with the technologist, with the programmer who will hack a different thing into stable diffusion mm. so that you can make a truly unique style of that image? Let's not forget that like, there is that kind of control over the tools right now. Do you want to riff on that? That's almost the perfect prompt, no pun intended, uh, in, in the sense that like, yeah, if you're a fine artist and you've got a catalog of content that you made and you've developed this aesthetic style, you could fine tune stable diffusion and conjure up new imagery that is exactly to your liking, right? Because the machine is able to distill down your style to this core essence and then redeploy that with, you know, other entities that you probably want to mash up together. So that's exciting to me. Like the other example is like Dream Booth's been going viral all over the place, right? People are putting themselves in interesting, you know, like, oh, look me, I'm an Avenger. But, you know, if there's somebody who's like a physical artist, like some, a sculpture that has like a library of sculptures that they made or physical models that they made, they could photograph them and then now put them in a bunch of different scenarios and situations with perfect like light wrap and color balance and just like something that would have taken, you know, you'd have to find an After Effects artist or a Photoshop artist that's good at compositing to do that. And so you can now very quickly you know, digitize in a sense your corpus your creativity and then, you know, redeploy that for all these consumption surfaces that we're talking about. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. But also, you know, like I almost want to react to your point about like when you were growing up and you were, wrote a ray tracer in college and then people asked you to learn the fundamentals of design. I would posit that you're still going to need to do that. Sure, I could say, oh, yeah, like, let me just J.J. Abrams this, and suddenly everything just has lens flares or whatever. But I need to know, like, what it means to J.J. Abrams something. And so I feel like that aesthetic eye, that technical eye to be able to, like, think like a technologist or think like a creative to put concepts and, you know, Lego bricks together in unique ways is never going to go away. 
I just think the canvas of creativity gets far more complex, right? And so thank God we've got these new pieces of like technology that we can put together to deploy against this ever increasing more complex canvas. What do you think the implications there are? It's like, I think film school hasn't gone away. It's just YouTube university now. That's what I would posit. A hundred percent. Just to be, to get on the record, I did go to art school. I took that advice and I would have not had a career if I hadn't, honestly. I think what I'm stating is that you can be very creative as a technologist. You can be a creative technologist and advance the art of interactive and linear storytelling and be participant in that setup. So it's not just a easel maker and the paint maker and the artist together anymore, but now there's like a whole nother set of technologies that can be brought to bear on advancing what you're doing together. So what are the implications here? Well, you can't help but look at the, the media landscape right now and the fact that everybody from venture capital to players in the creator's economy to journalism to late night TV having the CTO of OpenAI speak about the meaning of it. If there are signals coming from every portion of the ecosystem, then you're looking at a dramatic shift that you can't really predict. But what you have to play through is different scenarios. Where would we go with this? So let's take again my friends who are professionals in the movie industry and the game industry, my friends like yourself who are coming there from the social media and from short form content. What if we gave them a platform to protect their IP and build on it and make something more meaningful that shifts the power back to the individual creators over the current holder of the intellectual property, which went from studios to the the YouTubes of the world. So that's a scenario. The other scenario to me is how does text to content integrate itself into all of this? There's lots mm. of ways of doing it. Like Autodesk is doing it. There are plugins for Stable Diffusion and Maya. Adobe is doing it. You mentioned this. Marketplaces are bringing this in. So that's one way of integrating it. I would want to play through if it's possible to do all of the things that we're talking about without any of the existing ways of dealing with the data that underlies it all. That's a big, almost (laughs) red teaming question for the software industry. What if there is no more, no such thing anymore as 3D and content and 2D images, but it's all just from text and from dance and from sculptures and poetry straight to the IP and then integrating that. So what if that goes away altogether? It's something you have to just think through and then look at what would be necessary on the way there. I don't know, of course, but it's wildly interesting to play from various angles. Do you have a hypothesis? I don't think anyone knows, right? But I have to ask you, on this journey, young Hilmar now, would it be like an artist being told, hey, you need to learn how to code? What do you think? Do you think people need to learn how to code or the no code stuff will just make that sort of less relevant? The reason I also bring this up is this notion of like creatives and technologists working together, which is really the premise for why we're having this conversation, right? Like it seems those roles are like inextricably linked now. And so 
do creatives need to become technologists and technologists need to become creative in this new world? I think we need to be respectful of what we've already gone through in technology and art. So maybe that's another side thread at some point is to look at what happened when the camera appeared on the scene uh, yeah. a, a long time ago and how artists reacted back then. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, it's, let's make that a separate thing at some point. Yeah, but yeah. if you take that and play it forward to digital image technicians, mm. You cannot do anything on set anymore without that person. A person who knows everything from bits to optics to media compression, transcription, how to get it on a server, make sure that your frames aren't glitching and all this. So the digital image technician, you would look at that and you'd say it's a 100% technological role. Yet the art doesn't exist anymore without that. 100%. And I want to take that just the next step further because do you need to learn coding in order to succeed? No. But if somebody comes from school, even high school these days, because YouTube is as good a university on this as anyone, anything, you are still empowered to participate. I think that's the exciting bit here. And I would want to just stop the technologist in the group. It's like, oh, I only, I only know Python and these language models. And I, I don't make movies. Like, Yes, you do. With the right partners, you'll make better movies and you'll be participants. So let's just start the clock right now and look for when the end credits of a movie is going to contain something about the prompt designer or somebody about uh, <laughs> the style model coder or whatever it's going to be. Further to things are coming together and it really started with it all becoming a digital thing, but surprise how fast it's going right now. Surprise is uh, an understatement. I have a slightly different take on that personally. Go. The reason I would say this like if somebody asked me for advice, I would say if you're going to film school, you should probably be learning Unreal Engine. I would just be honest about that. Like, uh, and the second thing I'd say is if an artist asked me if they should learn how to code, what I would say is yes, if you want to be at the bleeding edge. Like I think just knowing a baseline level of programming or development or just knowing how to think in terms of like modules, frameworks, like systems design thinking or whatever, I think is helpful if you want to take, oh, this from this GitHub, that from there, duct tape it together and be at the bleeding edge. But given, you know, the velocity at which stuff is happening, if you don't want to be the early, early adopter, you just give it a little bit of time and suddenly a nice little web UI pops up, a nice little native tool pops up that abstracts out that complexity. But I think being able to think like that is useful, right? Like the example might also be like website design. You could be a Photoshop or Illustrator designer. And I think like, or now a Figma or sketch artist or designer that can construct immaculate interfaces, but you won't be able to do that until you know what it takes to convert those pixels into code. Like, oh, can I do this in React or Bootstrap back in the day, right? Like if you knew, oh, I'm using this framework, you might be intentional about constructing your designs in a way that can be realized more easily. And while it's not as linear, you know, waterfall as it perhaps used to be, I think that is still a useful skill to have. So the counter argument there would be like, well, what about like GitHub like Copilot? Have you heard of this thing? Basically, it's this oh, like yeah. model trained on like, oh, we happen to have a repository of human written code everywhere, including your own code. So the style with which you write, so you can get amazing autocomplete suggestions. I think what that means is the craft 
as you called it, which I think is a great word for like the sort of technical aspects of anything you learn, maybe get less and less relevant, but being able to think like a designer, engineer, artist is going to be so helpful. So I think everyone should learn that, like the sort of the yin to their yang, if you will, whatever you're strong at, you should at least have a working understanding of the other thing, if nothing else, so that when you're a deeply technical engineer working on, I don't know, OpenGL real-time runtimes, you can talk to an artist that's like, yeah, this is what I'm trying to go for. Here's how I realized something with like, you know, Bloom or ambient occlusion or whatever the hell, like, oh, I'm trying to create this overcast day, you know, but I really want a lot more greeble aesthetic to it. You can articulate in ways that the engineer could then understand. So that's the slightly different twist that I'd perhaps put on the, should you learn to code or should you learn design question? It's a good one. I mean, yes, you always need the people who think on the horizontal and those who go really, really deep on one thing. And that makes it fun that neurodivergent in that we have different way of thinking about it and you just got to leverage it. It's a, More it's a real opportunity. That's what they call it, right? T-shapes. Where are you broad? Where are you deep? So maybe... That is a good transition to this amazing other question we were talking about, the ultimate consequences of all of these things. We talked about the near-term implications. If we really fast-forward this thing, if we take this to 11, where does this go? <laughs> where does this go? You had an interesting idea of, like, what happens to PowerPoints in the future, Hilmar? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, you know, everything that, that we're saying right now could be appearing as visuals behind us. Um, and I think the PowerPoint improv comedian with immediately provided videos behind it and music, like dramatic. Oh, it's a funny moment. <laughs> it all shows up. Clearly, that's going to be coming. But the, the piece that I think have the most interest in is the strong competition between the classic studio system and OTT, so the, the streaming services that are out there, and then user-generated content. There's something yeah. in that battle zone there. <laughs> totally. <laughs> what a trifecta, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty rich. Well, I hope great ideas are going to come out of it, and they're going to have a chance to win the right way. And for people who do form these groups and these uh, consortiums, and uh, I don't even know what to call it. Consortium's the wrong word. There is definitely going to be one. The Generative Content Consortium. Maybe we should start one. <laughs> Just <laughs> but that they get rewarded for the work that they're doing. That you get the person, the two or three people that are super deep on one axis and then the ones who integrate it into meaningful content creation, but also that there's the producer hat in there saying, yeah, we're going to protect this property and we're going to build something on it and, and sort of a showrunner level. It almost requires all of these previous players to come together and think about it. The ability for you to stage a comedy production on a Hulk movie set or for you to take your avatars that you play with in Roblox and let them run around other people's property. That's really exciting. And it's going to be a while to, for us to get there because convergence is happening. And while the speed of the tools is happening, the integration, it will take a while for us to accomplish that. And you mentioned the M word metaverse a little earlier, just a quick shout out to our friends from building the open metaverse podcasts, because they're doing really, really good work. And it's an area that we should just stay away from. But there you go. There is another essentially medium beyond film and games where things are going to take place. And they're doing the work to be done on talking about how to make it open source and effective for everybody. 
Metaverse is nothing without the generative content, right? Like, where are we going to get all this immersive 3D content from? It's not just going to come from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? And I think maybe that's the exciting part is like a single artist could rival the output of a studio. But then, of course, a studio could take things to a whole new level of immersive creation and consumption altogether. We're almost jumping to this like legal and policy question. So maybe we could come back to the final implications of media. You talked about like building this stuff in a way that like really empowers the artist, right? And this brings up this question of like IP and copywriting, which neither of us are clearly lawyers, but we're creative technologists in our own right. The example in everyone's mind has been this gentleman by the name of Greg Rakowski. His name has been an input like in the style of Greg Rakowski has come up and resulted in 93,000 AI artworks that mimic his unique style. So how about we talk a little bit about like, can you really copyright some of these things or rather, can we create a content ID system that is respectful of styles and aesthetics that people carve out? Because the challenge is right now, like the sensitivities are, well, hey, if I look at Greg's work and let's say I have a Wacom tablet, I know digital art, I make something in that vein. Well, I could do whatever I want with it, right? Like go out and do it. There's clear IP around like, you know, trademarks and like, you know, a character and their likeness and all this other stuff. But there's this like nebulous middle ground with like aesthetic style. What does it mean to have like an aesthetic or a style that is perhaps a little bit more abstract <laughs> for the lack of a better word? Do you think we'll be able to solve that problem? And what happens when you've got like N layers deep of content that's derived from AI generated content. At some point, is that lost? Like, will we have our own version of like fair use, if you will? I'm kind of curious, like how can the early adopters and pioneers in this field be respectful of what it means to create art and be respectful of IP? Excellent prompt. And it's worth repeating what we said up front here. Everyone is orienting themselves, observing, and trying to make sense of it all. And since you and I are clearly, yes, maybe creative technologists, but we're certainly not lawyers, we're certainly not politicians, and those people are included in this right now. I would not want to be in the law right now and being <laughs> called upon and say, hey, how do we solve this from a legal perspective? I have to say, working with the lawyers in the space and thinking it through, it's amazing how the depth of thinking that is being applied right now. But it is clear that legal opinion, policies, regulations are coming. It has to happen because I think it's happened to you too, that people took your work and then recompiled it and you saw nothing from that. And this just breaks my heart. You do good work and you should be rewarded for it end of story. And if somebody like takes it away from you, doesn't feel right to me either. So everybody who is interested, it's everybody's responsibility to activate conversations with their lawyer friends or with people that they work together with to, to really think about, well, if we distribute that, what kind of ability do we have to protect it and make it worthwhile for us? Another thing, so we're saying we're staying away from law and from politics. And maybe another thing we should stay away from for a little while is decentralization of, <laughs> of, intellectual, <laughs> of intellectual property for no other reason that I, for one, am not enough, not informed enough. I'm super interested, don't get me wrong, but informed, not so yeah. much. I would say same thing. I would say Web3 more broadly 
happy to stay away from that. We got to come back to the metaverse at some point, though. Like, oh. I know the M word has a lot of baggage. It's the vague label you could put on this like new canvas that's like infinitely more complex and is the reason why creatives will always be relevant, right? Like, I think if you do text to blah, and let's say the highest realization of that is like video, let's say for the next year, we can really do amazing video. And then we're getting to 3D and then we figure out the optimization problem and animated worlds, you can start composing all of that stuff. I still think like there's so much language, interactive and, and cinematic language to be de developed at the intersection of this like sort of film world that's now becoming far more you know ubiquitous with like UGC content and so forth. And the same thing on the interactive side, right? Like thinking about game developments and the fact like what it took to build a game, how many years it took to Roblox. You brought up Roblox previously. Oh my God. The fact that it's all UGC and kids are growing up building interactive worlds and making money, maybe not that much money given the cut that Roblox takes, but still being able to create an interactive world, immediately get distribution. I think that's an example of this infinitely more complex canvas. The question I have is if the canvases are evolving, the methods to create content are evolving, consumption's evolving, will policy and institutional framework ever be able to keep up with the rate of change there? Or are we gonna have like, AIs <laughs> that define the laying the train tracks as the train is going, so to speak. I just pontificate on that. Like, you don't have to get into legalese. Obviously, everyone knows we're not lawyers, but like pontificate on that. That could be interesting. Yeah. We at Autodesk Research, our hypothesis is that without creators, without hundreds of thousands, millions of people, you're not going to build a metaverse. You need them. I think there's not enough technology and creative professionals in the world to, yes, build it, but to make it interesting, it has to have variety. It has to have grit. It has to have like these weird niches. And it's only going to be possible if a lot of people are at it. And the larger the number of people that are participating, the more there is need for policy to intervene or regulation to assert an opinion about it. And just because the hands-off approach to the internet was very successful, if we can go really wide, what's happening with geo on the geopolitical level in terms of the Russian net and what's happening in China, the world has become so complex in that sense. I have to assume that people will get involved. They're thinking about it now. The odd thing is, what is going to bring it to head? Like which artist group, which artist is going to say enough is enough? I'm going to take it to court, might get a Kickstarter started to support them and like getting a lawsuit together. It could come from anywhere. It's very likely going to come from a place where we don't expect it to come from right now. But you're also seeing backtracking happening, right? Like, so we talked about Shutterstock, which is an interesting example here. Oh, right. Yes, yes, yes. For the uninitiated Shutterstock, obviously one of the big stock image video companies out there have an amazing repository of content that you can use, you know, integrate in your own content. Initially, they took a very strong position where they said that we are not allowing any kind of AI-generated, you know, content to be sold on our platform. And just a couple weeks later, deep partnership with OpenAI, OpenAI is trained on their data set already, which is why a bunch of the Dolly outputs look like stock imagery. And now they're working together on this, right? This isn't something that can be pushed back on. I think the example is people, to your point about the internet, is such a good one, Hilmar. People learned from the whole like LimeWire, Kazaa fiasco that, you know, this is going to happen. Maybe the implementation wasn't peer-to-peer, -peer, but the unbundling of the album happened. That was a 
trend that was going to happen. And of course, iTunes, Spotify, companies like that leaned into that. And of course, now the way artists create music has changed, right? We talked about short form, a similar trend of the unbundling there is all around music, right? People are know that singles are going to do really well. Nobody listens to an album from beginning to end anymore. And so this sort of like unbundling and rebundling keeps happening. But what that tells me is like, I think the best thing that can happen is that people can take a more proactive role versus a more protective territorial one. And the companies that I'm like most curious to see how they react in this world is like the YouTubers of the world, the TikTokers of the world have been doing this, right? The early YouTubers, like circa 2006, 7, 8, were told, what is this YouTube thing, blah, blah, blah. This is never going to replace like long form, traditionally well-curated content. And the studio world, so to speak, right? Like the agencies in LA, so forth, took their sweet time to realize that. And I think now they're all in and leading the charge, right? Like the amount of metaverse chatter that's happening in LA is insane itself because... I'm sure all these like IP holders of these massive cinematic universes are like, hey, rather than just making movies or really expensive AAA games, is there some middle ground emerging here? Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen in your old world, man? Like, do you think the movie world is going to embrace this generative content world? Or do you think they're going to be like, oh, this is scary because now anyone could mash up my awesome, well-curated IP with something else and create something that's ostensibly original and not give them any royalties for it or something. I'm kind of curious, which way do you think that's going to go? I mean, you handily walked up to a plausible way. What's going to bring it to head a little earlier? I don't know where it's going to come from, but that is a really good notion that studios have fantastically popular IP. They want to participate in metaverse and new theme parks, doing things on your phone, social media, Twitch, whatever. They want to participate with that IP. They, of course, they realize they need large number of people to participate. So they might be the ones who are actually pushing the angle. Well, they will have the financial means and the legal means in their studios to say, hey, look at this from a point of view where the way IP is encapsulated is... We can put it out there so it is used and people can add onto it, put it into new context, put it into interactive situations, and then we're protected, but they're going to get a cut from it. That might be the way that's actually going to come from the big companies, because without doubt, the current trend from like race to the bottom in content production, like people have worked quite hard and the demand is not letting up. In fact, it's going to increase. So that may create an incentive for the studio system to respond to say technological means, legal means, let's get them lined up and then engage with a large audience of makers, producers and consumers together. Wow. That's a scenario. The producers and consumers together. The makers part is interesting because you could almost an AR artist wielding this could be like a content manager. Isn't the right word? Like almost like a brand ambassador, if you will, Mm. to take that IP and sort of start contextualizing it for these various surfaces Mm -hmm. without needing to pull in, you know, ILM or whatever to make this stuff happen. Because, you know, that's pricey. I think it's going to be super exciting to see what happens. You also mentioned something interesting yesterday when we were chatting about what a good time for this to come along. Because like... Original content is is tough to make. You want to talk a little bit about that? (laughs) 
You remember that? Yeah, well, I think I was a little crass. I said, we're no, no, kind of running do. out of ideas. We're running out of ideas. I mean, this is if you look at the other day, I was like, on one of the streaming services, I was having a hard time to find a movie. I found one, watched it for two hours. It was absolutely fantastic. It was all about character and depth. And like, I was like, in it. After that, that was it. That was the movie I could watch this year. So it's, we need new ideas. It's as simple as that. And I think the ideas come from really from idiosyncratic points of view, from people's experience in life, niche interests. And yes, we're primed for that to kind of blossom and bloom and make it a more interesting place and an ecosystem. But I do want to hear your point of view on that. Like if you had to highlight a player or a medium that you think is going to lead the charge into a new restructuring of content and the ecosystem and the way we do business. Who do you put your money on? You brought up like the studio model, the OTT, and then like the UGC model. I would bet on OTT and UGC. I think like the studios are already pushing towards OTT. I mean, that's what Disney Plus is, right? That's what like all this original content that Netflix is making. And people might criticize Netflix. Certainly their shareholders might be, you know, a little iffy about like, why are we burning so much money to create these two hour immaculate pieces of content when, you know, kids on YouTube and TikTok are basically running rings around them. I think both of those mediums to me in the near term are the most exciting for this like generative AI technology because distribution built in. I think the metaverse in quotes stuff, the interactive 3D stuff will take a little bit longer. There's some harder technical problems on consumption to solve there purely around like supporting a large number of concurrent users. What are the interaction models? How do you have people that are on mobile and VR headset and desktop all playing seamlessly together? You know, and, and so like, it's not modern warfare on steroids, right? I, I would even argue it's not Fortnite on steroids. I think that Roblox to me is a closer example of like UGC model. And then Fortnite to me is like the Netflix model in a sense that is still top down, super curated. And yeah, there's this creator mode, but like mostly what people do there is like the Ariana Grande concert, the John Wick DLC or whatnot. But I think on the other hand, when it comes to things like YouTube, TikTok videos and the Netflix model, that's where I'm maybe a little biased because that's where I deploy my attention and energy is on the short form content stuff or even longer form content. How do you make it reduce the effort taken to make a better produced 10 minute video? So the standards will start getting higher and higher. And I think the type of risks and the creative vision that you'll see embodied in moving pixels will go up. And so that's what I'm probably more excited about in the near term. There's one more component where you're you're the monster gamer. And if you look at studio model, which of course is game studios as well, mm -hmm, right? Totally. OTT is geared towards linear content. Stadia just wrapped and I'm wondering whether streaming games, like where that's going to go. And clearly Roblox and UGC, they're leading the charge there. Is there a future in your opinion where stream anything is possible? Your podcast, your video, your games, your metaverse, your escape room. I don't know. What do you think? 110%, right? Oh. This reminds me of what we were talking about yesterday, which was when we... Take this to the extreme. There's two examples, perhaps. If we just stick to that longer form and short form consumption model, like you could give, you're sitting down with your friends or family to watch something. You could ask for a very unique prompt of something. Oh, I want to see Spider-Man except in Mumbai directed by J.J. Abrams. 
I want to see that. Let me see something cool. Boom, we see a completely original piece of content for something that we were feeling, right? Same thing could apply to interactive content too. And so what I would say is like right now, even on the interactive higher end AAA studio side, they're leaning into this with a notion of DLCs, right? Could people author their own DLCs by giving a prompt? That could be kind of interesting to see. Like you play the game you want to play, right? And to your point about this, like, we're going to have even more people on the internet. There's going to be even more communities. The shift from, like, vanilla creative to hyper-targeted. The Reddit model, if you will, there's so many interest-based communities happening. Could those interest-based communities interact with brands and IP that they care about, but kind of consume the content in their context? I think that's where this will start going, and that'll be a little bit exciting. The more scary version of that, you know, which you had a reaction to last time we talked, which is like... You take the TikTok algorithm and you just have a feed of generated content for Hilmar to get Hilmar to do something. We don't know what. Maybe to go buy some Bud Light or something. I don't know, which would be particularly dystopian. When you can take these algorithms that are currently matching massive corpus of like UGC content or even Netflix, you pointed out, how do we have different types of thumbnails that will get people to click on this piece of content versus the DVD cover that I remember going to freaking Blockbuster and like picking up in this world where, you know, you watch that movie for two hours after looking for a bunch of movies, But now if we're at a place where attention spans are like people will dip out 15 seconds into a freaking thing, maybe the algorithms understand people well enough to generate content that will engage them. And I just hope like I just hope that whatever is generated is like enriching to people. That's the part that I get worried about is you could take that uh, total different direction. I could start getting really weird. Really interesting thoughts here. And maybe we have promised we're going to come back to the artists and like put out a call for action. Yeah. I say the passion of creating things needs to stay alive. There are more and more and more people wanting to see your specific content and start playing with a thing. If it's real time, if it is the creative new technology, all creative technologies, if you will, and then find what has impact. Andrew Andergnoss says that every time that's the CEO of Autodesk, he says, follow your impact. That is something that you can and must do. So the demand is there. If you have a passion, see where that passion impacts the demand. What do you want to put on top of that? What I would add on top of that is continue to be excited about the creative things your mind wants to conjure up and then take advantage of emerging technologies, creative technologies to accelerate parts of your workflow that either you didn't enjoy doing or were like mundane or required you to outsource things. And secondarily, take advantage of these technologies, particularly where they are today, because they're primed for this, is to explore more of a creative canvas and spectrum of options before committing to something, because it's cheap to try things now. And that's magical, right? Like as a creative, if you don't need an army of concept artists to give you something, like to just figure out what does this kind of look like, just storyboard this thing out. I don't know, like, would this kind of screenplay be interesting? Like you could try things out, have GPT-3, take something directionally where you might want to take so you can decide where to put your actual precious human attention. Excellent observation, Billy. We haven't had enough time to look at how do these text-to-content algorithms already impact us today, like just a few weeks or months in. So that's something that is worth expanding on and also what woke both of us up is the fact that it is moving so incredibly fast in the open source community 
in that it's like it's go time for everybody to participate to try it out to break it move it move this work into their own workflow and let the rising tide lift all of the boats indeed we should let the rising tide lift all the boats and not be drowned by it. We're just scratching the surface of the implications that this technology had. The impact that some of these models are already having on, you know, text-based workflows or image-based workflows is significant, right? And it's very easy to write these things off as something that's far out in the distance. I think that's perhaps what plagues the metaverse. What has been different with AI is like people can see the impact this is having today. Mm -hmm. Their Twitter mm -hmm. feeds are getting filled up with this type of content. It's here and now, not this thing that hypothetically, maybe potentially, if the stars perfectly align in the future. So next time around, we'll take a look at the various modalities of AI content creation and how it's having an impact on workflows today and how you, as the creative technologist, can take advantage of them. We're looking forward to seeing you then. Yeah, thank you for joining the Creative Technology Podcast, episode one. 